This podcast is brought to you by Touch a Life. Welcome to Happy Homes and Gardens. My name is Daphne Royce. I'm your host. I am a real estate broker, architecture, and interior designer. Gamatron is the world's first fully robotic gamelon orchestra. Aaron Taylor Kofner, who is an electronic music producer, works with sculpture and song. He stands alone Gamatron artwork with other projects, have exhibited many continents throughout the world. John Hart Taylor is the co-founder of Lumageek, who used LED technology to create artistic display in the U.S. and Europe. Aaron and John worked together to create the one-of-a-kind experience in Gamatron and LED phenomenon. Good morning, John and Aaron. How are you today? Morning. How are you? Doing well. Please tell us who you are and what you do. Shall we go alphabetical? Yeah, take it away. <laughs> I know, double A, I'm always first alphabetical. Yep. <laughs> uh, my name is Aaron Taylor Kuffner. Uh, I'm a multidisciplined artist, um, and I make sonic kinetic sculptures. So that's sculptures that make sound and that also move. Uh, one of my best-known projects is called Gamelatron, where I'm inspired by um, the Indonesian tradition of gamelan, which I studied for a long time and lived in Indonesia. Uh, studying, um, and I retrofit them with mechanical mallets and create these sound-producing sculptures uh, where it's almost like a player piano, except instead of the mallets striking the strings of a, of a, of a piano, it's these kind of modernist sculptures that are being, um, that are utilizing bronze, hand-forged bronze gongs usually as the piano strings, if you will. And I make these kind of ghostly musical automatons. How about you, John? All right. Uh, My name's John Taylor, and I'm a creative technologist and artist. Uh, I've spent a large portion of my life supporting other artists with uh, various technologies, software, uh, hardware, uh, just custom solutions, some CAD uh, design, and just, you know, really helping, uh, you know, various people that have inspired me kind of grow their artistic practice by infusing a little bit of technology into their world. And that's actually how I met Aaron, uh, was a very kind of early uh, injection of custom software to help the Gamelatron project evolve from being uh, originally kind of a, a residency project with a lemur the League of Electronic Musical Urban Robots, uh, Eric Singer's project. And uh, me and my business partner in LumaGeek, we provided some custom software and hardware that helped the project kind of evolve and and grow in uh, some pretty interesting ways. And and that was how we met uh, quite some time ago. And it's been uh, wonderful to work with Aaron. And now we are collaborating uh, together as artists. And uh, yeah, you've seen the, the results of that collaboration now. So that's uh, sort of what I do. So how long have you two known each other? And how did you start to collaborate? I've uh, known each other for about just 12 years or so, something like that. Um, and I think the collaboration really started um, on different levels. 
So in the beginning, it was um, John and his partner, Jojo, really looking at what I was doing and saying, you know what, this could be done better. You know, uh, there's other kind of creative technological solutions that could be implemented. And they happen to have the unique skill set in order to do that. Uh, John as like a, a software engineer and knowing a lot about interactive technology and things like that. And Jojo as a hardware uh, engineer and knowing a lot about um, the nuts and bolts of like printed circuit boards and how to make your own uh, physical computing systems and such. And so it started out that way as they were kind of technological support for like, my art artistic project. Um, and then it evolved because you know, John, especially a very creative guy, and he started thinking about his own um, kind of visual mediums and ways in which he could kind of interpret the songs that I was creating on the Gamletron and how we could we could share the same data sets and create um, one would create as a sonic uh, presentation of it and the other could make a visual presentation of it. And uh, it's just kind of like a natural um progression over time as he got to know the project more and more intimately there was this kind of creation creative fusion between some of the things that he was exploring and how the two could relate to each other um using similar data sets in order to to kind of drive his uh led sculptures so Eric, you haven't lived in indonesia what got you involved in making gongs and gamletron yeah, um, in hindsight, it looks all lined up just perfectly. But of course, that's not the way the world really works. I think that's the challenge of life in order to be able to look back at the things that you've done and synthesize them into your present and the future. Um, so I was in Indonesia not knowing exactly why I was there. Um, or I wouldn't say not knowing why, but I didn't have a big vision uh, for the experience. I was just experiencing things. And I got really attracted to the traditional art form known as gamelan. And I enrolled in a university there uh, called the Institute Sending Indonesia in Yogyakarta. And while I was there, I got more and more interested in the actual gongs themselves that they would use usually for uh, cultural, traditional, spiritual practices. And in my investigation, I wanted to know how they were made. And so I kind of took it upon myself to learn that and to hang out with different gong makers and this very niche in industry of, um, of gong makers, many of them for multi, multi generations. Um, and then when I came back to America and specifically New York, that's where I'm based, I didn't know what I would do with this kind of abstract knowledge. Uh, but of course you paint with the colors that are on your palette. So I painted, metaphorically, would be experiences that I had and the things that I knew. And that was the beginning of um, taking this other component of, let's say, sculpture, where seeing these gongs and um, building these ways for them to hang in these kind of beautiful modernist uh, wall-mounted freestanding sculptures, but then also thinking about how they could be played beyond just by people, but um, the technological side of it and was also influenced by the people who had done similar things. Uh, John mentioned Eric Singer, who, who had an array of kind of robotized percussion instruments. And that was the beginning of saying, oh, well, if we take this element of technology and this element of sculpture and this element of sound, and then 
incorporating all these different elements together in order to create this kind of unique original hybrid. Um, but when I was studying, I didn't know that's what I'd do with it. I was just kind of following um, the things that I was attracted to and trying to learn from them. Do you know what's the biggest country making gong in Asia? Well, a lot of different places in Asia make gongs. Um, there's a lot of distinctions if you want to get like very ethnomusicologists like uh, most gongs would probably be in the percussion field be considered tam-tams. And uh, that's actually like, plate, you know, the kind of like circular plates where you can hit in different places and it makes this kind of splattering of different sounds like the gong show, or you think of um, a kind of Chinese gongs and things like that. In Indonesia specifically, um, they have a boss in the middle of the gong, which is used to tune it. And they try to make the entire gong make um, one primary note, unlike, let's say, a tam-tam, which is, or a cymbal or something like that, which is going to splatter different, different notes across a wider spectrum and not be really as tuned for a specific note. So um, gamelan is, is like a tuned percussion, closer to, say, like uh, maybe xylophones and things like that. And they use their gongs in the same way. Um, so there are some distinctions and unique things about all over Asia that have different kinds of gongs, and not just in Asia. I mean, there's a, like a, a great tradition in Russia of like uh, plates. Um, they're like metal plates. And I think... Humans in general are attracted to reverberation, uh, resonance, and feel a affinity and a connection to these different kinds of like vibrating uh, sonic objects. And that's why they're part of our culture. And it reflects the ideals of those cultures, how they're played or how they're made or what context they're used for. And so the Indonesian ones that I was influenced by uh, is at this point, I think, more coincidental. It doesn't have to be about Indonesia at all, and what I'm doing is not. It's more about humans interacting with resonance and having these intentional sound experiences in their lives and in their diet. And I was exposed to Indonesia, so I use that um, and have like that background. But I'm trying to do something that's more universal. And when we really look at culture in general, the use of sound in, in people's lives, be it for spiritual reasons or community reasons or um, you know, just to be part of their diet, I think we see a lot more consistencies, maybe different interpretations or different ways of doing it. But it, it is something that I think makes us grow, heal, and become a better person. So what are your guns made of and where they made it from? Are they make it locally in the U.S. or they actually make it somewhere else? Yeah, all over. Um, most of the gongs, and you'll see some behind me and seen some before, they're made of copper and tin. Uh, it's usually recycled copper. Uh, it can be pipe. It can be wire. It can be anything. Uh, sometimes it's even um, like, you know, scrap. We go to scrap yards and we melt down things that have copper in it and we separate out the copper. And then tin is harder to find now because there's not as much conventional use for tin. So a lot of times we have to like buy ingots of tin rather than being able to scrap it. But it's like 10 parts copper and three parts tin usually. Um, the great thing about that and the reason why the bronze era was the bronze era is because they have about the same melting point. So you can create an alloy of bronze by melting the two together in the same pot. 
um, which is a lot easier than making a lot of the other metallic alloys. And um, that's the way they've been doing it for a thousand years. Uh, and it's kind of poured out into a pancake, like a thick pancake. And then through a process of reheating and pounding it and reheating and pounding and reheating and pounding over and over again, we create its shape and uh, we like make the molecular structure more compact and you essentially create the gong depending on its size and its thickness and different parts that are raised or flattened. You can create different tones and, um, and then series of different tones together can create kind of like a scale or your own sonic palette or universe. Um, I work with a couple different teams. Um, some people that I worked with when I lived in Indonesia, some that I've made new relationships with. A lot of them are in Surakarta, which is a city in, in central Java in Indonesia. Um, I also make some here, uh, depending on travel times and abilities uh, and what facilities I have available to me. I've also explored using more tensile metals like steel. Um, and using sheet steel and forming it, um, sometimes welding uh, bronze parts to it, uh, especially when I'm trying to make oversized pieces, um, when I'm trying to make gongs that are four feet and, and larger that create really low resonance. Most of those I make uh, here out of my studio. Um, so it's probably that those are the two, it's between my studio and, um, and we do a lot of the hot forging in Indonesia, and then I ship them back to me. And then I do the cold forging and the tuning and like the surface finishing uh, here once we've already have the primary shape. I believe I heard four different metals that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. copper, tin, bronze, and steel. Do okay. they make it different notes, different sound from different okay. materials? Sure. So a little distinction. Copper plus tin equals bronze. So bronze is an alloy, uh, which means alloys just means it's made from multiple metals. Now, modern day bronze can be made of the only ingredient that you have to have for bronze really is copper. Uh, so now there's a lot of what they call red metals, uh, which is like any metal, any alloy that has copper in it. So brass would be another one. Uh, traditional bronze, which is what these bonds are made of, is copper and tin because they melt up roughly the same point. So they're the easiest ones to make. So that if you wanted to melt them together, you just put them together, heat them together, and then cool them together. Whereas like most other more complicated alloys, you'd have to heat each metal individually to the same melting point and then have like a much more sophisticated combining system and stuff. And that's why the bronze era was kind of like our first of the alloy eras in human history. Um, so copper plus tin equals bronze. And then steel is actually an alloy too of iron and carbon. Um, and steel just has more tensile strength, meaning that it can like not snap, like it can be really long and it'll bend rather than snap and it'll keep its strength. Bronze, on the other hand, is pretty rigid. So if it's really long, it'll hold a lot of strength. But then if you push too hard, you're not going to get a lot of give. It's just going to like snap. So what happens is with smaller gongs, I, I make them all out of bronze. But with the larger gongs, where they have to kind of support their own weight across like bigger and bigger space, I've moved to using steel because it, it's a little more forgiving in, in uh, being able to bow. And the steel works a lot easier for me to do here in my facility, whereas a lot of the bronze work, especially for just forging, like heating up the metal and then pounding it into shape, I do it in the traditional way with um with a team in Surakarta, uh central java and 
you know, with a team whose father did it and their father's father did it and their father's father did it. Um, uh, so there's still like a legacy connection, uh, connection there. Why are there so many different sizes of gongs? Um, the bigger the gong, usually the deeper the pitch in general. So depending on what kind of sound you want to make and what pitch range, uh, think about this. If you opened up a piano, right? The high keys all the way on your right side. If you opened up the piano, you'd see that they were very small strings, short strings, I mean, and usually uh, uh, thinner. But as you get to the deeper and deeper ones, these are longer and longer strings and they're thicker. So that would be analogous to the gongs, where the smaller and smaller gongs make higher and higher pitches. The deeper and deeper notes are going to be bigger, bigger gongs. And there's other factors that go into that as well. But without weighing you down in like uh, the specifics of gong making, that's probably the the most um, the most obvious of what kind of pitch you're going to get. Think about bells and things like that too. It's usually like the smaller the ones, the higher the pitch. The bigger the ones, the the deeper. Each gong makes one note. Am I correct? In um, it makes one primary note in this kind of gamelan tradition because they have this raised knob in the middle of the gong. And so that kind of focuses the entire body of the gong around like really resonating this one note that it's tuned to. Now, a gong uh, from China, for instance, let's say a tam-tam, depending on where you hit that plate, it's going to make different notes. But it usually doesn't make a very focused note. It's kind of more of this, this splattering kind of note. Uh, so this is just a different concept where you really tune this knob and then the entire gong, if you strike it on that knob, where it's kind of intended to be struck, um, it really focuses the entire surface around making that sound. And truth is, there's actually a lot more than one note in there. There's like these overtones and undertones. And if you looked at the, the actual note uh, in like a spectrometer or something, you would see that it's not like a perfect waveform, but rather it's, you know, has these different fragmented sound waves. And that helps create like this really unique character, unlike let's say a sine wave synthesizer. So it has this still like very organic and unique properties, even though it might play a very one specific note, it has a lot of character to it beyond just what that primary note would be. And that's also gets into what's so unique and fun about them and different from, let's say, playing a piano, which would have much more pure sound waves, uh, sine waves, meaning that they wouldn't really uh, deviate far from their primary note. For someone who wants to get a set of a gamatron from you, they can do the smaller set with the field gongs. Would they make a difference for the music they play? Okay, well, the quick steps is like this. I do make some pieces and I, I sell them. And they that'd be just like buying any other sculpture, um, except this one also makes sound. And I usually compose songs for those uh, sculptures. And then usually have some kind of button array uh, uh, built into the sculpture or an app in which you can choose which songs to play. Or you could set a schedule, kind of like, setting an alarm on your phone, you know, except instead this will play different songs at different times of day or turn them off. Most of the time, though, I'm working very site-specifically. 
So someone might have a home or a garden in which they want one of these artworks in it. And then I would work with the design of that space, uh, both physically and sonically. And then I create an artwork that is kind of hand in glove for, for that uh, environment. And then I do um, site responsive composing, meaning that I'm like a band that might make an album and then when they get on stage, they want to sound like the album. I don't do that. I instead come on site and I write the music based on the use cases and the intention of that space. So if it's in a garden, for instance, I'm listening to what are the ambient sounds in the garden? What kind of birds are coming? What kind of insects? What kind of day? And then I use these other sounds in order to kind of incorporate into uh into what I'm creating. And I create these kind of ambient soundscapes that are really thinking about how is this going to best serve the people, the humans, the, uh, the, the, those that are living in that space. And um, really it's like a very bespoke composing project and no two pieces are the same and no two compositions are the same. And uh, even the scales that I'm using will be different. It's not like a standardized but rather I'll create these kind of sonic universes the same way that an artist might have a palette that has red and orange and yellow on it, but it's not necessarily a primary red, orange, and yellow. They, they have all these nuances and then that creates relationships between that red and that orange. The same way I'm doing that with sound, creating these like unique relationships between these like specially tuned instruments. And then that also jurisdicts like how they create uh, their picture, if you will, like how they create that song will be based on their unique relationship between these subtly different notes. Um, very interesting. Yeah. But it's very bespoke, <laughs> you know, in part to my own detriment, because now it means I can only make a few a year. Uh, so I try to pick my projects really wisely and things that I like feel really inspired and engaged by and also try to work with people that you know, have the, want this in, in their life and want to, to honor it and share it. Um, and so it means that there's usually a lot of direct interaction between me and the people who's, who are going to have this in their life, because ultimately this is, I'm serving them. You know, this is something that like is here to edify them. And so my job as an artist in this case is to, be as potent as possible within the parameters that that we think are going to be uh, best in this situation. And I understand John is doing an LED display. John, how did you find your LED display that can cohesively flow with the Gemtron music? Well, the LED displays are very custom in the sense that uh, the shapes of the LEDs are, are rather unique. Uh, as you can see behind me, it's kind of a very like long aspect ratio display. <clears throat> so that's something that I actually really had to design myself and get kind of the smallest components possible uh, to wire up into a, a custom display. It's the same type of technology that you might see uh, for a freeway billboard or maybe even a big video wall at a music festival like Coachella. But those are very specific modules that are usually big squares that all kind of quickly go together and turn into a big giant display that's really meant 
to, uh, to show pictures. So my exploration with this LED technology has been to really focus on the individual LEDs and to try to display um, patterns that, that really kind of, uh, kind of have like an organic and natural feeling to them. So something that's going to very much resonate with our parasympathetic nervous system, where for some reason, uh, you know, the wind blowing leaves and trees or the ripples that are in a pond, these are all things that are incredibly soothing and calming to humans. And this is just because of our natural evolution. So to try to reflect uh, that back to the viewer using a digital technology, it, it can be a bit challenging. And that's really where I've tried to focus my uh, journey with this art form is, is to try to come up with very natural feeling patterns, but use modern technology to bring them to the viewer. And then that opens up the possibility of being able to synchronize those patterns with the compositions of the gamletron. I think math is also really part of it too, where I know that when John first started thinking about this, it was very much so about nature, but it was also about the, the same way that we can interpret certain aspects of nature through like mathematical algorithms and things like that. And that there's this great kind of meeting. Uh, it's kind of like the Fibonacci sets or like fractals and things like that, you know, where you have this like meeting between like, like physics and science with, uh, with the natural world. And it all of a sudden, like, uh, you realize that like math doesn't happen in a vacuum, but rather like, you know, happens all around us. And I think that there's this, this thing that John is doing where he's using algorithms in order to kind of describe the way in which like things move the same way that they would, um, let's say in nature and then, um, creating like a, these series of rules that allow the sounds themselves to be the, the, the wind you know, to, to like create that, that instance. And so it's this great hybrid fusion of both, you know, technology, pure mathematics, but also with uh, an eye towards like working with uh, nature in, in a way. John, I can see you have uh, the LED display panels behind you and those are the Gamatron. Do you mind if you can turn that on for maybe like 30 seconds? Listen and can kind of experiment of it. what we were talking about. Okay, I can do that. Uh, let's see here. I'll move out of the way. So. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
we have videos that we can share with you. It's very soothing. I think I can hear that whole day long. Yeah. So, John, is it there a popular LED screens people preferred? Elongated, like what you have, or you made it different shapes? I've been really enjoying this long aspect ratio. It makes me uh, think about like reflecting ponds, you know, where it's uh, just like a long and skinny kind of um, form factor. And as far as the, the size of the LED and the spacing, this is a two millimeter LED pitch. Uh, you can have like, you know, bigger spacing and bigger LEDs. So it's more like they're individual dots. But this two millimeter spacing, I find very interesting because it's sort of right on the edge of being able to manipulate individual dots. But then when you stand far enough away, it's amazing just how much your brain fills in uh, the in-between kind of the negative space, the little gaps in between the LEDs. It's It kind of flirts with going back and forth from, uh, you know, kind of 8-bit uh, individual pixels, uh, but then it kind of melts together as you start to visually relax your eyes and becomes more of like a cohesive, uh, almost like video or photo quality to it. And so I really like kind of flirting with and experimenting with going in and out of those two modalities uh, by way of this particular LED spacing. This question is for both of you. So what is the most challenging part of your work? Oh boy. Um, I'd say for me, it is the context switching from one side of the brain to the other because there's a very technical part of the work that I create uh, where I'm creating these custom digital canvases. Uh, that's where I, I tend to use a lot of you know structure and I'm, I'm really thinking of it in terms of geometry and, and sh hard shapes. And then uh, you know, I like to you know switch, but sometimes the context switch to go into the artistic mode where I just really sit with the, uh, the the visual end result, and all the while I'm getting that result by writing custom software. So there's quite a bit of bouncing back and forth between hemispheres of the brain, and so it's really just kind of uh, you know trying to balance those two tasks and make sure that that I really do get a chance to, to sit with the artwork using kind of both, both sides of, of my thinking. It's funny because that's, that's like my favorite part because I fall into a similar category where it's like, you know, I spend more time, people don't realize it because when you see like a finished piece, you the thing that you're experiencing is is more like the sound or the the end game visual presentation but as far as the actual fabrication like i mean i'm bending every piece of metal i am shaving every part like it, it's it's an arduous amount of work that goes into getting to this place where you can just experience it as a as a totality but i think that i've like uh some part of me wanted to be that kind of like craftsman. And, but at the same time, uh, I also thoroughly enjoy the more, um, the, the side of, of making that has to do with like being in the flow state in that moment of, of, you know, bringing these parts and things together. So it's like, 
not necessarily a challenge. It's more like something that I've like reveled in and I've forced my, I've given myself the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to like spend my days, you know, like navigating between these in part just to like excite all these different parts of my brain from like what I can technically do with my hands as a craftsman to what I can technically do as a technologist and someone who's working with, you know, uh, computers and, and all these, these different elements, you know, to like an artist who is like, you know, working with form and shape to a composer that's working with like sound and experience. And that all these different things are challenging, but like, it's been very intentional. Like I could have just been a painter, you know, and not to put painters down because I love that. But at the same time, there's a reason why that is not the end art form. And that like created this challenge in a beautiful way, not in a negative way of like taking all these different things that, that I'm interested in and that I might or might have to gain the ability to, to do and, in order to create this like wildly strange hybrid uh, thing and birth it into the world. And so when you say like, what's the most challenging thing, I don't look at that in any way as like a, as a negative or detractor, but rather like this project was designed to be challenging. Like, it's kind of like, if there was no challenge, it's the reason why it's very hard to rip off because who else in the world does this? You know, like who would hand make all these ridiculous little parts, you know, and figure out how to like, you know, create physical computing systems in order to trigger them and sequence it. Like, it's so ridiculous that it's part of the beauty and part of what makes it like uh, a very unique ownership and, and special in the world. And I also find that like, and I I think John has to do this too, is training your mind and your skills to be able to do this array of things is also a very unique thing because we're in a world where we are using technology all the time very seamlessly. And there is a sense of like making tech for tech sake. But the artist always looks at it like everything is an art material. Everything is an art supply. So taking these kind of uh, tools that we have at our hands and then figuring out like what is the artistic interpretation of them is like a, a really great crossroads that both John and I can fit into, which is one of the reasons why I think we appreciate each other a lot. But also it's make, it makes what we do that much more like fun and unique and uncharted. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, that's a really beautiful way to... To, to put it in the sense that it's it's a challenge, but not in the negative sense in the slightest. I mean, it's truly really become my life's work because I do thoroughly enjoy the pursuit of, of both sides of it. And it's, it is truly unique. And there isn't a lot of utility in the world for displays in this form factor, <laughs> you know, beyond right now, kind of these, uh, you know, the long digital reflecting ponds that people can meditate on as they're, listening to this, uh, you know, to a sonic kinetics culture. So that's, uh, that it's been, yeah, a wonderful journey. And, you know, Aaron's been a, a huge influence in, in really uh, leading me to that joy as well, as I leaned more and more into my, my personal art practice and was just encouraged to keep going, keep experimenting, uh, you know, keep just, you know, make the thing and then spend the time with it, you know, kind of like do the craftsmanship 
and then come back to it and visit it uh, from an artistic standpoint. And so this collaboration's just been really wonderful. It started when I guess I moved to New York in early 2017 and um, continues to this day. And yeah, I'm really grateful for the encouragement. I would say you both are the master of what you do, and that's why you are one of a kind. I understand you both have worked in the Burning Man events. How was the first experience? Um, I mean, <laughs> Burning Man's a lot of fun, uh, and it's at this point it's it's in a it's much more than a, an event that's been going on for so long, and it's also had many different lives and different histories and dimensions as both John and I have had different lives and histories and dimension, and we've met it at different points of our life. Um, and I think Burning Man more than anything for, from my point of view was um, really about um, having a canvas, a blank canvas that you're allowed to like take risks with and uh, something that you also were like knowing that this, that you're doing this for your community and, and to share something with your community. And so it's been really valuable throughout the years and saying like both John and I, you know, we're like, I, I first went in 95, you know, that's a long time ago. Uh, things are very different from that. And Burning Man's kind of its own can of worms for those, those, uh, for people that are, that are really into it. But more than anything, I think that it was a very liberating, still is a very liberating event that allows you to have like a, a real expanded canvas, a lot of freedom to explore what you think um, you could creatively offer to your community. Um, and I think it remains that to this day. Uh, and both of us have done a lot of different things there. Um, I, I, you know, John's helped me with Galatron a few times there and he's, you know, he's a heavy machinery operator and has like an amazing uh, community um, that, stays together well beyond Burning Man. And, you know, it's like a catalyst for a lot of the different networks that we've grown, uh, artistic networks and, and friend networks over the last decades. Yeah, that's, that's a really great way to summarize. Uh, you know, I definitely would not be who I am today without the event Burning Man that came into my life in 1998. Um, and then I went for half my life. Literally, I went 21 out of 42 years on the planet. Uh, didn't miss a single year until I took a year off in 2019. Then, of course, the pandemic, uh, you know, stopped the event from happening for a couple of years. But my sort of relationship to the event kept changing, you know, almost every other year, you know, different opportunities unfolded, different people came into my life. Uh, I was able to really lean into the community aspects of, you know, building large art, helping out other artists uh, really with their journey, infusing technology into various art projects. And then, as uh, Aaron mentioned, um, you know, I eventually decided to go down this path of sort of a white glove but blue collar relationship where I was kind of doing white glove art handling but driving blue collar, very large machines for the heavy equipment team. So I started working for the event to help produce the event. And that allowed me to touch, I mean, dozens, if not hundreds of art pieces over the years, especially this last decade of my involvement with the event. Um, I really decided to pay it forward because it changed my life as a, a young 20 something year old. Uh, and then 
uh, it was profound. It was a profound change. And I wanted to enable that for other people so they could start going through their evolution and their changes. Because I think um, that's really a, a large part of what that event has to offer is, is change and evolution. And um, otherwise, it would just be the same old thing and the same old party. And it's definitely not that. And it's because people grow up uh, with the event and then uh, hopefully pay it forward. Please share what and where your next project is. And today? <laughs> day. Well, um, I mean, we have a couple of different things going on. We do have, uh, John and I are working on a private commission for a home in, uh, in San Francisco, uh, like a, a big penthouse, beautiful views. Um, And uh, it's, it's a, a Gamotron that has been designed specifically for this kind of open concept uh, penthouse. And after I install that, John is designing uh, a series of interactive light sculptures that will be kind of driven by the sound. So he'll take the data that, um, that becomes my compositions and then reinterpret it as these light pulsations. Uh, and that's something we're working on just next week I'm going to get the Gamotron in and then and then the lights will come after but probably the next like uh, real public thing is uh, there's a space called here on arts it's a it's an art gallery and, and uh, an art center in uh, Soma in San Francisco and um, we're going to install a large scale Gamotron and a series of, uh, of John's light sculptures that are all interconnected with each other And we've also invited a couple other artists working in a similar vein under a similar concept. So other artists that make um, light-based artworks. And they're also going to heed the challenge of taking the data that becomes my music and reinterpret that within their, within their light-based sculptures. Um, and so that will be running December, January into February. Uh, for like kind of time ticketed experiences. Um, yeah, at, at Huron Arts in uh, uh, South Market, San Francisco. I guess, John, you're going to be working a lot on the LED display there. Yep, yep. we're going to be very busy for, for the next month. Um, and I also have uh, another project in my studio at the moment, which is um, doing the lighting design and sequencing for an amazing... Uh, artist uh, who's a Stanford design professor named John Edmark. And that was a commission from um, an overseas client and two sculptures are going to be shipping out in November to, to go to this beautiful restaurant in Dubai. And so that's uh, yet another project that uh, is kind of on the horizon and another lovely collaboration. But yeah, Hair on Arts, uh, the Resonance and Light is the name of the group show that we're having at Hair on Arts in December and January. And so, yeah, Resonance and Light is really just a wonderful passion project that I not only kind of conceived and produced, but also I'm participating as an artist. And uh, it's, it's just sort of been wonderful to bring together like-minded artists that have, uh, you know, a passion for light and want to reinterpret the resonance of the gongs in their, in their light medium. And it's just been a, a delight. We did it last year as well. Uh, last winter, we kind of, uh, and you know, this year is going to be new artists, new cohort, uh, a couple new artists, a couple returning artists, but 
Uh, it's all going to be new projects, um, except for the, the main anchor of the Gamletron and the panels that, that you saw. So, Is that the free event where people have to purchase tickets to go? So last year we did it as a donation-based uh, uh, experience, and we did it in very small groups, partially because the, the ongoing pandemic and Omicron was kind of just coming into well, maybe just kind of uh, tapering down a little bit as we opened the show last year. Uh, but still, uh, we want the experience to be very intimate. We want small groups to come and listen and relax and have that parasympathetic connection with the, the sound and the lights and, uh, and just really enjoy it in a smaller group. So I think this year we're going to um, shift slightly away from the donation-based model and go to a more ticketed event. But it's not like a, a, a ride where you buy the ticket, you go in, you come out the other side, and it's finished. Uh, it's still going to be a kind of casual drop-in experience, but we're, we're going to need to really limit the number of people and the number of, I guess, kind of chairs in the room, if you will, for for people to experience things. So we're still dialing that in a little bit, but there will be uh, tickets online and a schedule and people can kind of reserve their, their uh, listening slots. What we learned from last time was it was definitely like a really good, like a couple of friends or just like an, an awesome date experience where you really are, what is it about 5,000 square feet here on arts? Yeah. But it's, it's, mostly one big open room and you are surrounded by different gongs and sound making things. And it's a dark environment. And then you have these different light sculptures that are reacting to those sounds, like literally overhead around you on all sides in corners, things like that. And so you can kind of like, like float throughout the space to get different interpretations. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just like a really, um, it's the best way. I want to say it, it's it's cozy. It's like will stimulate your mind, um, but it's also something which like I find it incredibly like relaxing as well. It's it's a really nice balanced uh, experience where it's not too showy, um, but it's also has like a lot of a lot of soul, and you can kind of determine how long you want to be in there. I mean, we're staggering people coming in so that it doesn't. So everyone has a pretty intimate experience rather than doing parties or big events where, you know, it's, it's, you might lose the uh, artwork in the social atmosphere. Um, but definitely, I think it's something to be, it'd be a lot of fun to experience with like a couple friends. Sounds great. And I have one last question for you too. So how will people get in touch with you interested in your products? Gamalatron is pretty easy to find. Uh, if you just know how to write that word, Gamalatron, it's like Game LA Tron. So, uh, you know, uh, that's the handle at Instagram or Facebook or something. But probably the easiest way is just um, to the website, uh, gamalatron.com. Uh, there's like an email form on there. Uh, I definitely encourage people to just like acquaint themselves with. Uh, you know, like the archive or, or a variety of the different things that, um, that we've done before. Usually when people contact me, it's because they've seen one or two pieces um, and sometimes don't realize like the range of different work from indoors or outdoors and really huge to smaller and things like that. So 
a lot of times going to a website or looking through the Instagram feed gives you like a wider range of possibilities. And then that starts the, the daydream of like what might work best in your life. Um, and then we, we start a conversation uh, from there. How about you, John? Uh, yeah, same thing. Maybe going to the website for Luma Geek. That is the uh, kind of bespoke software and hardware consultancy that me and my business partner uh, have had since, I believe, 2013. The site's a little bit out of date at the moment, um, but it gives people a good idea of the type of projects that we've worked on and collaborated on with a variety of artists, usually a very um, you know, light-focused, LED-focused uh, collaborations, but sometimes more just pure technology. Um, and so that's uh, a good place to, to see what I've done in the past. And... Um, pretty soon there will be a, a new website in the world uh, that's a little bit more specific to my current uh, practice and, and my evolving work in the studio here. I will definitely link both uh, website informations uh, to the audience. And I really appreciate you both today and for this out-of-world experience. Well, thank you for, for sharing it with people. Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure and, and it was wonderful to host you both here in my studio in Portola Valley and uh, in my home in Redwood City. So you've seen these two Gamletrons and um, hopefully uh, you'll come to Heron Arts as well and experiencing everything there in December. I would definitely go there and with my friends as well. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Here is a piece of a Gamma music. Hope you enjoyed it.
You have just listened to Tall Radio Podcast. For more podcasts, visit www.touchalife.org. Thank you.